This is Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time on this Sunday morning. Our guest this week is returning home to Nebraska and to the UNL campus after a really interesting career working in broadcast news and also some time serving his country over in Iraq. Adrian Whitsett is here, has been with us for the last few days as part of the University of Nebraska's Multicultural Homecoming events. He is UNL's distinguished alum for these events going on this weekend. And he'll be busy, has been busy, going through a variety of things with the Chancellor's Commission on the Status of People of Color through the Jackie Gone Memorial Center and the Nebraska Alumni Association. We welcome back him back to the College of Journalism and Mass Communications from which he has some degrees. Welcome. We're glad to have you back in Thanks. the school. Thanks. Glad to be here, Rick. How long has it been since you've been back on the UNL campus? I barely stepped foot on campus in 2017. I, was, I came back here... Uh, for my bachelor party uh, for a Kendrick Lamar concert down at the Pinnacle Bank Arena uh, because it was easy. My friends are still here in Nebraska. My close friends from high school are still here. And so it was easy to, to make that trip. At the time, I was living in Orlando and, and came back here. But it was dark when I was around campus. So I didn't notice all of the changes then. Uh, and it seems like there's a lot more these days. Yeah, I think you could come back almost every week and find something that's different from sure. the last time you were here. <laughs> but uh, you were wandering these halls back in the, the 2000s. You're mm-hmm. a 2008 graduate of the college. And if memory serves, you have uh, a couple of different undergraduate degrees from I this have place. A, I have a degree from the J School specifically in broadcasting. And then I also have a philosophy degree uh, from arts and sciences, which I think that building is gone as well, <laughs> or, or just in a different iteration at this point. So yeah, two degrees. Uh, I had transferred here from UNO and spent my last two years getting those degrees here in Lincoln. A Papillion native, it was just a short job, a jump down the road to get to UNL. Looking back on it now, when you look at that combined degree program of uh, broadcast journalism and philosophy, how have you found that those two intertwined in your career? They don't. They don't. Uh, but I think the philosophy degree for me was always the, the sort of esoteric degree. It was just something I wanted. I didn't think it was going to carry me very far. I never thought that I was going to end up getting a master's or a doctorate in philosophy and end up teaching it. It was just something that I was very interested in. This I saw at, on top of being very interested in it and how it all gets put together. I also saw it as a career path and something that I could sustain for years and years. And so it, yeah, you don't really uh, wax philosophic <laughs> on the daily when you're interviewing people. But what you do get out of it and what I got out of my philosophy degree was um, learning logical arguments, learning how to phrase questions, learning how to interact with people and knowing that there are often two sides to debates and knowing that in journalism, you have to be sort of down the middle, but you got to understand both sides. And I got a lot of that in philosophy. So it was just a different way to think um, than some of my peers in in broadcasting would have gotten had unless they got a philosophy degree as well. You grew up in the Omaha television market, which has some fine broadcast uh, journalism outlets up there. You must have watched Channel 7 as a kid growing up. I don't remember honestly watching news as a kid. My parents weren't avid news watchers. 
my my first sort of foray, and this says a lot about news for me in general, my my first real watching the news, understanding what it was, was the Oklahoma City bombing um, and like glued to that coverage. And yeah, I, I don't really remember sitting down and watching. I remember people who I worked with at KETV when I was in high school, I remember seeing those broadcasts and then someone walking in the building and I've got Rob McCartney there in the same place that I worked, Julie Cornell. Um, and one of my best friends from, from high school at the time, Brandy Peterson was working as an anchor there as well. So Rob and Brandy, both also alums of this Absolutely. August institution. Mm-hmm. So there's um, a lot of cohesiveness sure. uh, in that market and a lot of, and Melissa Fry as yes. well, who started yep. here, she went here, then went to Lincoln and, and is still on KETV. Well, and one of the things that's interesting, you mentioned the Murrow bombing, because, uh, that was also a sea change in terms of it being probably arguably the first major news event that had a significant online coverage pattern to it because the internet was in its early stages of news coverage at Mm -hmm. that time. We have a a former faculty member, retired faculty member here who was working for the online division of USA Today. And and he, he talked about how they were having to create the vernacular and the vocabulary of how they were going to cover a breaking news story in real time. Wow. And that it also was one of those where I remember going to news sites online to see what they were telling me about it. And a lot of the news sites covering that story weren't even in this country, which was a fascinating sort of thing to think about how the Internet changed our entire way of how we get news, but also began the seeping in process that how do we know this is real? Happened that quickly. Yeah. I mean, how how did this person who was in Toronto know what's going on in Oklahoma City Unless they were just picking up what somebody else ran Which with. Which is usually what it happens. Right. Unless so they're trying purposely to, to sow disinformation. And we, we hope that doesn't happen, but right. we know it does. Mm-hmm. So so you worked at Channel 7 for seven years, and then uh, the itch came to move to Orlando, Florida. What yeah. was the, the, the move like from Midwest uh, it down was, to Florida? It was a change. Uh, it was definitely a change. It's just a hyper-speed sort of market. There's more people. There's more of the breaking news. And that's sort of what I sought. Uh, not that we didn't cover lots of breaking news stories, sort of, if you will, in Omaha. Um, it was a pretty fast-paced market, but it was Omaha. And then I got to Orlando, and again, you're talking millions more people um, and and just sort of a different – things happened at a different speed. And I guess the easiest example, when I worked – when I was in Omaha at the end, so 2014, my last year, I was anchoring the 5 o'clock news – and I would fill in for Rob when he wasn't there. And I would turn a story, one story for the 10 o'clock news if I wasn't anchoring that show. When I got to Orlando, I was the weekend anchor. So I'd anchor just weekend nights. And then my other three days, there were days that I might turn three packages. And it was still working with a photographer, but I might do three packages on two different stories um, or two packages in a Vosat. Like That just was not the, the pace in Omaha typically at that time. And so I learned to be even more flexible. I learned to better adapt. I learned to write very, very quickly. And I already thought that I was a fast writer (laughs) after working in Omaha. And it just, it was like warp speed down there. Well, um, and you probably were a faster writer than when you'd been in school and were learning part-time. And then this just ratcheted it up another level. Absolutely. So yeah, it was a great move and and we loved it down. I was there for six years um, and covered, I mean, 
my very first intern day in Omaha was the Von Marr shooting, um, which obviously was crazy. But I didn't have a hand in covering the news that day. Um, and I unfortunately would end up doing that in 2016 with Pulse. And so I've seen my, you know, I mentioned the Murrah building originally. That's sort of the, the thread through, I guess, of my existence in news are these crazy stories. And I think it is for lots of people um, if they spend any amount of time in this business. Let me veer off track since you mentioned the, the, the coverage of that sort of breaking news. We've had just within the last uh, 24 hours of your arrival on campus uh, another uh, mass shooting. This one up in Maine. And I, as we're recording this, I, I don't know if they've been able to finally finalize a number of fatalities yet or not. It's bounced back and forth. But you've been in that situation covering this sort of breaking news. Mm-hmm. What are some of the challenges that reporters on scene and the folks in the newsroom wrestle with to be accurate and fair, but also understanding the market competitiveness mm-hmm. of one station versus another? I think the the immediate is that you you don't always know how how inflated the numbers of casualties might be you don't know what if as you arrive on scene especially if you're one of the first um you have no idea what you're about to get into you don't know what's coming at you um you might be seeing i was not first on the ground by any means at pulse um but i know from people who were there i mean you're watching as people are are streaming out of this um torturous and terrifying event and your journalistic brain is trying to remember that yeah you you're trying you want to talk to people you're trying to get some information but you're also seeing panic and you're seeing that people are trying to escape from from trauma and so you you're you're trying to weigh i guess in a in a way the humanity the humanity of yourself and also the job at hand then once you get through that initial sort of shock and awe, you it's a waiting game. You're you're trying to get information. You're scouring the internet. That's what people are doing back at the station typically, trying to see um, what's going on, who's responding, who can we talk to, who can, who we can get in to be an expert and and sort of speak on the event because we don't have all the information. Um, and I think the the hardest part for anyone is that you're covering a place that you live in and this event is happening in the place you live sometimes hundreds of feet away from where you may actually live the event is happening which um you're seeing a little bit here in lewiston maine i mean this was a a popular area for lots of people it was well known uh pretty small and tight-knit community of i think forty thousand or so and so every journalist who's there whether they're out there at the scene or inside um, based on how how many casualties they might be, there may be a very real connection with somebody who's inside. And I think that's a hard thing, too. It's, it's hard to sort of shut off. Um, and there is like an adrenaline rush, of course, when things are happening like that. And you're, it's almost like a, a barrier can, can come up um, to protect you emotionally. Uh, but it's difficult. It's, it's crazy. Does there come a time following the coverage of an event like that where you just need to decompress and walk away for a while and say, I need to allow myself to get away from this space and maybe even heal a little bit before I go out and cover things again? Or do you just keep motoring through? I I think for a long time, industry-wide, I think we motored through. I think there's been a lot in the last few years 
where there's been more talk about the the impact of those events on the people who are covering it and the mental health aspect of that. Um, I know for me personally, when when it came to Pulse, that was on top of it being a, a crazy week for everybody in that market. It started. Um, I don't know if you know this. It started the night before with a, a crazed fan's murder of a woman who was a, a singer on The Voice. Um, she had just performed. This guy drove from Tampa, came in, shot her, injured her brother. So that was wild and crazy. And then the next night, early in the morning, like Friday night into Sunday morning now, is Pulse. And then two days later, there was, um, and I'm in the moment I'm, I'm forgetting his name, um, there was a little boy and his family from Elkhorn who were down at Disney World and at the Grand Floridian Lagoon, an alligator got him. And it's just like, and I'm on scene for that one. And so I walked back in the office that morning, I think at 4 a.m. and I looked at my assistant news director who had been called back in after doing all of this round the clock coverage with Pulse. And I was like, I can't come in tomorrow. And it's just, and I think lots of people at some point took a break. Um, you don't get that on every story. It's not the, it's not typical, you know, a day to day sort of thing. You're at least for me, that's my, my emotional health in that doesn't, doesn't play a role. Um, but a situation like that, it absolutely does. And I'm not sure that's something that most folks uh, watching the news or reading it online or however they're getting their news think about because they're so focused on the story that the reactions of and the effects on the storytellers may not be part of that. We have an alum you may have known. I don't, I'm trying to remember what years she was here, but Christine Johnson, who's now the co-anchor for the 6 and 10 News at CBS2 in New York. Okay. She was covering Hurricane Sandy. And that was when they completely just shut down New York City there right. for a while. The newsroom said, you need some time to go decompress after this. She was on her way home, and she got the call about the shootings at Sandy Hook. Oh, man. And had to turn right around and drive back and then cover that on the heels of Hurricane Sandy. And at the time, she had children who were the age of some of the little kids who were killed at so Sandy so. Hook. And she said that was just really a tough back-to-back thing to have to cover. But Sandy Hook was worse just because of the... Yeah. circumstances behind uh, it but she had to take time after that oh, too and I just can't sit even back. imagine yeah so you go from your years in uh, in working in Florida mm-hmm. and then in 2020 relocated to Cincinnati yeah so what were the circumstances of that move? so uh, some of it was uh, some of it was a career decision I didn't see I loved Orlando I loved the station that I worked with I loved the people that I worked with um, it was in the middle of the pandemic. We had just had our son. Um, so when I made the switch to go to Cincinnati, I think he was seven months old, seven and a half months old. And there were lots of other anchors. There were other people who were, were sort of ahead of me um, in position in Orlando. And I didn't see that changing in the near future or the long-term future. And so I sort of made the decision. My wife's family is also from the area. So having a son in the middle of the pandemic and trying to think um, what would be the sort of best way. And it worked out um, for me to, to make the move to Cincinnati. So I've been there for a little more than three years now. 
um, anchoring the morning news, which is what I've been doing since 2017 in both Orlando and Cincinnati. So you have a history both in reporting and in anchoring. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a preference? Do you enjoy one over the other, or are they mutually satisfying in different ways? That. Okay. <laughs> Next um, question. <laughs> I, no, I, I, the anchoring for me, so I'm, I was a, a chorus kid. Um, I did theater when I was in high school. I'm a performer at heart. I like being the sort of center attention, not to be um, – that's just my personality. It's, it's how I am. And so the anchoring part of that fulfills that need for my personality. Um, and especially in the mornings, cause you can do, you have a little more personality. You're not always talking about the, the most awful stories. Um, you still are, but you're not, that's not the only thing you're doing. And so there's some, some moments of lightness for you, but the reporting, I still go out. I still talk to people. I still get to share their stories. And there's a, for me, you know, you could talk to somebody for a half an hour or 45 minutes, sort of like what we're doing right now. But there is a, a joy, I think, in then crafting the whole story. In, in, there's something fun about that. Um, and I do get, we had a, an issue where people were calling in um, bomb threats recently to our to one of the main bridges in Cincinnati and I it was seven o'clock we had just signed off of our newscast and I went down (laughs) and I went with my phone to go see what I could see on one side of the bridge because our reporters and the photographers were on the other side so there's still this thrill in in whether it's trying to get the information first um, being at the scene there's still some of that for me as well and that's what I get from the from the reporting side. I noticed since you mentioned the, the slight opportunity for more lightness in the morning shows, I don't know if you're a fan of occasionally looking at um, online news blooper reels. I occasionally <laughs> will uh, enjoy those. And it does seem like most of the the humorous moments seem to happen in morning shows. Oh, I don't yeah. know if that's just because they're just more laid back and they have more fun with each other or what. But uh, I, I think I, so. I and I, especially when you look at something like a national broadcast you don't have much time at night. It's a half an hour, and if you're doing local, and if you're in a sports town, part of your news is gonna end up, it's gonna be sports, and you're still doing weather, and so you don't have much time to get in all the news that may have happened over the course of the day that's important to people, but over the course of two and a half hours in the morning, you could definitely find find some space for those, so yeah. Another side to your story is that um, you served your country during the war in Iraq back in 2003. And uh, I know in reading some of the information about you that it it mentioned that you enjoyed sharing stories about veterans because of that Mm -hmm. connection that you have. What are some of the the topics or stories about veterans and their service that you think most people don't know and need to from your experience talking with them and being one yourself? Um, I don't know if there's a a full side that people don't know anymore. I think there's been such a, a wealth of reporting on veterans and veterans issues um, over the last 20 years. But I think it's just keeping it top of mind for people. Uh, I think toward the end of the Iraq war, uh, as well as Afghanistan, and obviously the withdrawal of Af- Afghanistan became its own story. But I think there was a time where people didn't remember that there were still active duty troops in those countries fighting what would become almost 20-year wars. And so 
I, I think depending on where you were, you know, if you're in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and Jacksonville is your news, you're probably hearing more stories about what's happening at that Marine Corps base and what they're doing overseas. But if you don't have that, uh, if there's not a detachment out of Offutt, say, in Omaha, you're not getting those. I think we did a really good job both locally and nationwide highlighting the, um, the impact of 22 vets a day taking their own lives. I think that we – there's – the only thing you can do with that is highlight the issue and try and figure out what the problem was um, or try and figure out how to fix some of that, whether it's mental health, whether it's talking. And I think there were, those were stories that I really enjoyed doing when it was uh, the innovations. It was trying to figure out ways to, to fight PTS and knowing that it could still be a lifelong struggle, but there were ways to help and we're trying to find anything that works. So for a while, those were the, the sort of stories that I would tell, but I think just in general, like my favorite stories with vets right now are like the honor flight stories and seeing guys who went and served in Korea and Vietnam and who'd never made it to Washington DC and they get on a plane for the day and go up there and they see these monuments, they see memorials, um, they they help with the the, le- the wreath laying at Arlington, They they see the names of guys they knew long time. And I think there's some healing and some catharsis. And then they welcome them home, yeah. you know, with, with banners and flags and, and hoorays and things that maybe they didn't get when they got home. So those are the things that touch my heart now. They realized that they were recognized and appreciated yeah. in a society that didn't always do that. I know uh, my father's generation and my father-in-law were World War II guys and just didn't talk about it when sure. they came home because that was the attitude at that point. And there certainly was... We knew about PTSD then. We didn't call it that. We right. called it shell shock or the 2,000-yard stare or whatever they named it in the, after World War One. But So I'm pleased to see there were stories being done about that because it breaks my heart to read about a homeless vet or things along that line. You think homelessness is terrible and under any circumstances, but here's somebody that put their life on their line for their country. And um, those stories are, are tough. So yeah. good on you for, for well, and shining I think, the light when you can. I think, too, you see it in law enforcement. You, you've got guys who, because the, the war on terror was so long, um, you have a lot of guys who took their service and came back to serve once again, end up in law enforcement. And so you see a lot now. I know I saw it um, in Orlando. I'm sure that's happening here. And I, and I see it in Cincinnati, we just did a story about it, uh, where in law enforcement they are actively trying to make sure that when they have these interactions with vets, whether it's a homeless vet or a vet who is having um, you know, a, a PTSD interaction, Episode. yeah, that they are that they're trained now to think about that, that that might be the cause, and it's not just sort of erratic behavior, and they have people on staff to sort of talk about that instead of it escalating into something else, which is the way it used to be. So, And because you've been on the ground and you've been in an active uh, combat zone, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the reporting of our, of our current situations, looking at it from somebody who's stateside now in the ongoing situation in Ukraine and now with the escalation again of the circumstances in the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. Where it's, it, I think, becomes clear to a lot of folks in the journalistic industry that they're, social media in particular likes to have us check boxes. You know, we're, we, we fit this description or we fit this description, so there's got to be a good guy and there's got to be a bad guy. But in these kinds of situations, 
it's not that clear cut, is it? How do you how do you cover that? How do you report on that? I think that you. I think it's easier with the war in Ukraine. Um, it, it it seemed like there was a buildup. There was a lot of talk during the Olympics, like, "Hey, don't do this. What are you doing?" And then, well, you chose to do it anyway. Um, and so, good or bad is irrelevant. But there did seem to be a clear aggressor in that case. And it is a, at least from my point of view, at that moment, it was a, I mean, it was a war. It was somebody basically declaring war on another country and then that country defending themselves. I think with the Israel-Hamas conflict, you have such a long history of strife and of, um, I, don't, I don't even know the other word. It's for decades, there has been conflict and there have been peace talks that went away. There, there have been tries and there have been missteps. And so I, the difference is that it started with a terror attack um, and then has become something else at, from the, from the other side. And so, you know, you, you feel for everyone who's impacted, but you, I think journalistically, you just have to try and report the facts and not get into the, the other part. Um, and that's why it, it's why you bring in experts. It's why you bring in a professor on Palestinian Israeli relations and you talk to them and you don't make judgments yourself. You don't, you know what I mean? You, you bring those people on to have that conversation because you're trying to enlighten your viewers, your listeners, your readers without putting a, a stamp of bias on it as much as you possibly can. And when all sides in this particular conflict consider the same piece of property to be home, that's pretty tough. It is you, tough. You can imagine why everybody wants to defend their home. It is tough. So when you say, that's my home, no, it's my home, boy, you're, you're setting yourself up for some, some ongoing conflict. And the, it's strange for me because, you know, when you, I was 22 when I was in Iraq, and I was not there very long. It was, we crossed the border from Kuwait into Iraq when President Bush was telling everybody back here that we were doing that. And then for the next 70 or so days, I mean, that was March, and I was back on the ground in the United States at the end of May. It was that quick. I had friends who stayed longer as we had to get vehicles back home, things like that. There were more movements. They were building bases at the time. Um, and obviously, deployments afterward became prolonged. And you also had a different war. It was a shock war when we went in to fight. Saddam's regime, and then end of 2004 into five, you're talking about Fallujah, and you're dealing with a whole different conflict. And so it, it's, it felt different to me, though, that war in general. Um, and so I, I think that's sort of how I view um, whether it's the coverage or, or what people are dealing with with Ukraine, that seems, that one, I'm like, I see those images, I see what's going on there, and that sort of makes sense to me. Again, right or wrong, um, that one's easier for my brain to sort of understand. It seems more like a conventional it's conflict. An, an invasion. It, it, is, is right, it's an invasion, across. absolutely. Yep, yep. 
you referenced uh, having a, a child during COVID. That you have two. <laughs> I do. How did having children change your perspective on oh, storytelling man. and the kinds of stories you want to tell? Um, I'm focused more on education. My my son is in pre-K now, um, but even before then, it's like a constant. You're constantly thinking about it, and part of that for me was was not having all those conversations necessarily with my parents. Um, and having to figure out some of that stuff down the road. And so wanting to make sure that my son and daughter are more informed, uh, better positioned by the time they make it through their early education to, to get out in the world and do more. Um, I, so I, I want to do stories on education. I want to do stories on um, the efforts to have universal pre-K for K. I mean, the, it's those sort of things I think that change me immediately. Um, and then longer term, as of late, it's about the environment, um, what that's going to look like for them when they're older, because they're three and nine months right now. And so what does our, uh, what does our climate look like down the road for them? And these were things that I struggled with going back to the philosophy degree. Um, these were things I struggled with in even thinking about having children. It was like, think of all these things you have to think about that you don't have control over. And is this a, a society? Is this a world? Is this a place that I want to bring kids into? So I went through very philosophically uh, debating in my head and obviously have um, chosen to go this route. But it, it then fo forces me to sort of focus on things that are that are way down. And I like telling those stories. And I think they're impactful, not just for, for what I think for my family, but for lots of families. And again, without any bias to it, it's just trying to talk to experts about what they're seeing and what some of the solutions are. Sure. And, um, and there are clearly lots of folks in your audience who are wrestling with the same issues Absolutely. And, and value your attention to them. Yeah. We could go on for another two or three hours about <laughs> what you perceive to be how things have changed in the industry. But as you look back and then project forward in the, the various places you've worked and the various career, uh, the various sides of the career you've taken part in, what's been the biggest change and what do you think is the biggest challenge for you and your, and your news colleagues down the road? Mm. I think the, the biggest change altogether is that people don't get their news in the way they did before. And so, and specifically the younger and younger generations, they're not used to the, I'm sitting down, it's 5.59 and the six o'clock news is going to start and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch it for 30 minutes. And the next day when I go to work, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to have these water cooler moments with people, you know, those, that doesn't happen in broadcasts anymore. And because it all happens online it ha and it happens super fast. So before I ever even go on air, I have to presume that most people who are watching that are under a certain age, and I don't know what that delineation is, but pro under some sort of age who are not used to watching TV in that way probably already have three quarters of the information that I might tell them. And so I have to look deeper. I have to tell, um, I have to tell stories more in depth. The... The problem with that is you also are dealing with very short attention spans and not just for the younger, it's for all of us. <laughs> um, we're on our phones, we're watching this, we're doing this. And so try, 
trying to trying to be relevant for people in giving them the content and the information they need while also keeping their attention. I think that's been the struggle for TV for a while. You see, uh, you know, there's ways to do it that are gimmicky and people see right through it. If you just run a breaking news red banner through your entire show for an hour, at some point people are probably going to know that that's not breaking news. Um, or if you throw one over something about the Titanic, I remember that. <laughs> I was just thinking of that uh, same it's example. it's like, how, how do you... <laughs> hundred years do, ago Right, on this how date. do your viewers trust you then right. when something's really happening? And so I, I think that's the biggest thing. The On top of it, the change happened um, very clearly in the 2016 election and beyond. And I think that for all journalists um and i say it's if you're the traditional you know local sort of journalist where you are trying to be as straight down the center as possible or if you are a conservative leaning outlet or a liberal leaning outlet the lack of trust from people who are then consuming that content is at an all-time high and so i think that's going to be the biggest barrier for people who are just trying to get into the business is trying to, to figure out how to, how to be trustworthy and what you have to do and show that you are. And I don't know, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think that's going to be the big struggle. I think the answer is to keep doing what you're doing because the, the good news from your standpoint is that the most trusted broadcast news is still in local markets, sure. like right where you are that it tends to be the more network and online sources that are mm-hmm. viewed with some skepticism. But I, it's hard because people see, of course. like at my station, they see the ABC logo that's attached. <laughs> and so if ABC does something or shows something on their air that has a bias or a bent, the blame then trickles down yep. to us. And so, and again, that's something that's been going on forever. Um, and I imagine that people who don't have an affiliation aren't doing very well. Uh, in most markets anyway. so. And this is probably something that's existed forever as well, but it seems more prevalent today, maybe because it's just being covered more. But that is the troubling image of someone who, when presented with the facts, just chooses to ignore the facts. Sure. And I've, I've seen, I'm sure you have clips with reporters saying, well, you realize that's not true what you just said, and here are the statistics, and they'll say, well, I don't care. And <laughs> I don't care is troublesome for... For journalists, right? Uh, you'd like to hope that people do care and want the truth, but it starts to make you wonder how much that's no longer an issue. And it also, there's a almost a fundamental thing that's baked into telling a story, right? Uh, whether it's broadcasts or radio or print. You talk to somebody and you talk to somebody else and you get some information over here and you're trying to coalesce it and put it into a well-told story. But if I leave anything out, even one thing that that may not at the moment be germane to the story, it has it changes the story. And so you don't have all the time in the world, you don't have all the space on in print to write everything. So you have to be judicious about your time and your words and you put that out there and the hope is that people read it, they understand. You say, in a lot of these things, you're like, hey, there's a lot more to this, and here's the place that you can go get that information. I only have so much time. 
but not everyone does that. And if I go see, you've seen this, you can watch one local broadcast on a story talking to somebody over here and another one talking to somebody else. And those stories may be vastly different. And they may have been both eyewitnesses to something and they could still be vastly different. So where's the truth? And I think that's the, that's the hard part. It, it is. And, but you said something in your, earlier in that last comment that I value, and that was you said, I talked to somebody over here, and then I talked to somebody over here, and then I talked to and, – and I, I think where it gets worrisome is when it stops after I talked to somebody over here. Right. I mean, you at least are acknowledging the fact that, look, we need to get as many different voices in here, whether they all make it into my story or not. But at least I feel like I'm, I'm getting more of a 360 view mm-hmm. than just the one person who saw the elephant from the back end and the person who saw it from the front is never consulted. Absolutely. And I think most, most local journalists are trying to do that. Part of it's the training that you get. I mean, you're, you're trying to get the whole story. And yeah, you don't, if you do seven interviews on a scene, not all seven of those voices are making it into that story if it's only going to be a minute 20 on your air. Um, and some of them don't deserve to be. Right. But sometimes it's the, hey, I went out to, you know, I'm, I'm down in front of Memorial Stadium and I'm trying to get a, a read of fans' expectations or what they thought after a win or a loss. And if I talk to 10 people, I don't need 10 people. I can say, I talked to 10 fans and every single one of them said this thing. And so, yeah, it's, it's about... Um, trying to get as much information you can as quickly as you can and then seeing how that um, can be distilled and, and put into this really small package. <laughs> so changing gears one more time, what was it like for you to be notified that you were uh, being asked back for the multicultural events for this weekend? This was great. Alum? This was great. Um, they had asked a, a couple years ago um, uh, and it just, it didn't work out. The timing didn't work out. And so this year it did. Um, it, it seems like it's fitting. It's 15 years since I graduated. Um, so, you know, milestone there. Um, and just, I, I feel, you know, I came back here a lot when I was in Omaha cause it's such an easy drive and I love Lincoln and I would talk to classes and it was very easy. And I lost some of that obviously when I moved away. And so just being able to be back here, um, see what the next specifically here in the J school, see, you know, the, the next generation, what they're doing, um, what they're looking into, how they're thinking that excites me and just being able to, to sort of be here and, and know, I guess, in a weird way that, um, I'm doing work that matters to people and, and matters to the university that you put out people who continue, uh, to do that and, and want to come home. Well, it matters to us that you said yes to come back, and we're thrilled that you did. (laughs) Glad to be here. It's great to catch up with you. Yeah, it's great, Rick. Our guest on Campus Voices this morning, Adrian Whitsett, who is the morning anchor in WCPO 9 News in Cincinnati. And uh, before that, had a long career both in uh, Florida and starting out with KETV in Omaha and as an alum of the College of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Back for the Multicultural Homecoming this weekend here on campus. I'm Rick Alloway. This has been Campus Voices. And as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 
or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.